Weirdo Bookworms Unite! We want to share our love of genre fiction with you. Fans of horror, sci-fi, fantasy, and more can stop by as we chat about what we've been reading. Welcome to our first November podcast, Genre Junkies. I am your host, Sandra, joined, as always... By Scott. Hello, everybody. Hey! And our producer, Stitches, is here as well. She waves her little paw and says hello. So let's get started, shall we? Let's just jump right into it, because I am really freaking excited to talk about our first book of November. We're into fantasy now, and I'm so excited. Yes, and you know, October was kind of a fun, spooky-only anomaly, but we will jump around in the genres. We're going to meet all those genres. We live for it. So let me tell you about the book we read this month. Oh my god, this book was so anticipated by so many of us out there. 17 years in the making. Yeah. What could it be other than The Book of Dust, a.k.a. La Belle Sauvage, book one, by the one, the only, Philip Pullman? So this is a prequel to his famous, beloved, highly, highly awarded, regarded, and also controversial series, His Dark Materials. One of my favorite series that I've ever read. Very important to me. Me too. Absolutely adore this series. Almost cannot say enough about how much I love it. I think we both have like this really like kind of visceral heart soul wrenching reaction to these books. He's one of my favorite authors. He is one of mine as well. His Dark Materials was one of the formative books in my life. Ender's Game, of course, was my first real novel. But going into adolescence, high school, his dark materials shaped a lot of how I feel about life and about books. See, and that is super awesome because I actually had not read these until (laughs) we first met each other, which is still about a million years ago now. There was dinosaurs on the earth. (laughs) But when these books first came out, I was only peripherally aware of them. I think I was pretty ensconced in Harry Potter. So then when we met each other and we both loved books and you're like, you haven't read his dark materials? I could not believe it. It really was a one of the 10,000 moment. I, I mean, and so then I read them and I absolutely loved them. And they kind of were having a resurgence around the time I read them. Everybody I knew read them. And then they made the movie, which we shall not speak. Oh, that poor movie. Yeah, let's, we're, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. We can't. I can't talk about this movie it upsets me. it breaks my heart i mean it wasn't a complete disaster but it was terrible it was almost a complete disaster it was nearly it was a near miss it didn't it didn't do enough justice to the book in my opinion i wish it had been better so that they could have completed the series in the movies i think nowadays uh sometime later this would be the perfect thing for a netflix or a hulu miniseries oh or or a television or an actual television series through netflix oh it would be excellent yeah even just you know it doesn't have to be like 26 episodes long necessarily i, I mean i don't know it could but i think you guys get what i'm saying like i think now we need is to start the petition we need to get people signing off on this this needs to happen yes because now i think we're at the time and the place with how we process visual media that uh, I think we're ready for what needs to be done for justice to this series. So let's talk about the plot of this book. 
So this story takes place before the events of the first book in his Dark Materials, which is The Golden Compass. This is the tale of a young man named Malcolm. His family runs an inn near Oxford College. Malcolm is very observant and becomes entangled in espionage. It seems many different groups and individuals all want information on a mysterious little girl, an infant, named Lyra. Malcolm must bravely step up and take responsibility of Lyra's safety when unexpected dangers occur. As much as I really want to say about the story, that giving too much away will of course warn you, as always, before we get to the spoiler section. As a prequel, I think that it definitely helps if you've read his Dark Materials. But I don't know if it's necessary. No, I mean, my god, if you have not read these books, please start now. Please, please start now and just read this one. I'll, I'll go into a little bit more detail on it, but I'm... I think that you can start this series with this book, but I'm not I'm not 100%. Right. I mean, I agree. I'm not 100% either, but I think you can. I mean, at whatever cost, whatever you must do, you you must read this series. But I do think that this book is good on its own as a standalone. Oh, 100%. I don't feel like you're missing anything, but it's such a beautiful, incredibly rich story. That I think you owe it to yourself as a reader to read these books, people. Come on. I mean, I think a lot of people have read these. I mean, a lot of people have read these books. Most of our listeners have probably read the original trilogy of His Dark Materials. I hope so. So let's talk a little bit about the world of His Dark Materials. Kind of a recap, if you will, uh, for those of us that maybe you haven't read these books in like 20 years or something, just to kind of remind us all where we're at. So this story takes place in a world very similar to our own. It's basically Victorian England, but with some advancements in their technology. They don't have cars, but they have zeppelins and they have um, other sorts of like rudimentary batteries. Well, they do have cars. They have electric cars, mostly. Right. They don't have cars and a lot of traditional technology in the way we think well, of yeah, it. It's a little steampunk. It really. is a little steampunk, actually. Like people ride around in zeppelins and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and balloonists. Uh, this story deals with magic and science. It's often called science fantasy. The series really does tilt over into science fiction. It does, but it's also so fantasy. So it's really hard to totally narrow it down into one category, which is fine. It doesn't have to fit in a box. It is to science fiction what Star Wars is to fantasy. So in this world, there's magic and there's science. Uh, specifically, the issue of physics comes up quite a bit, which I love this term. They call it in this world, experimental theology. Because everything in this world is very deeply rooted in religion and spirituality, specifically Christianity. The sciences really are just an offshoot of theology. Now, it is not exactly Christianity in name, but it is Christianity. Well, it's the church, but they never say Catholic or Protestant. It's just the church, and they do refer to Jesus and 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 Christ and, yes. and the typical Christian, Christian values. <laughs> Jinx, one, two, three, four, five, yummy, a Coke, Diet Coke. All right, so in this world, part of what makes this series so compelling for so many people is the concept of demons. Your demon. Do you say it demon? It is, d- it is pronounced demon. I've always read it demon. It is demon. Okay. 
uh, which is something that a lot of people aren't used to. The way it's spelled is it kind of looks Damon, but it's Damon. Yeah, it's it's the A and the E are really one letter, so it's D-A-E-M-O-N. So your demon, as a recap, is your soul. It's the innermost reflection of yourself. It really is a physical part of your body that's walking around outside of your physical self. It takes the form of an animal. And uh, before you kind of come of age, it can change its form a lot based on your mood. Like it's actually physically painful for you to be too far away from your demon. And what's what's special about demons is they really are their own characters. Yes, because they are... They are one with the human they walk with. But at the same time, since they're your most innermost reflection, they're going to say things almost like your true conscience would, like your uh, subconscious. I I don't know, conscience. It really is a better way to communicate with your conscious, your your conscience. Mm -hmm. It's like a Jiminy Cricket. And they really do speak and they can speak to other people. They they really are truly other characters. And yet they are very much tied to the human character that they are part of. There's an unspoken taboo about touching someone else's demon. You don't do it. If their demon wants to touch you, that's fine. But mostly, like, the demons will touch each other, like humans touch each other. That's right. You never touch someone else's demon and vice versa. Like, unless you're invited. Unless you're invited, that's right. So, demons are too much fun. Because it's, um, I mean, we love animals. We're animal people. And everyone loves to imagine what their demon, what shape their demon would would take. Right, because you never know when your demon's gonna take its true form. Like I said, it's kind of a coming of age thing. And you never know what it's gonna be either. But of course, we'd like to just take a moment to theorize about our own demons. Scott, what would your demon be? We discussed this already in the past. <laughs> we did. I'm cheating. I think that my demon is a kingfisher. It's a bird that can fly but loves to fish. It could scout up ahead of me and look around while I'm boating, but would enjoy the activities that I also enjoy. I think that is a perfect choice for you. But you totally don't agree with me. No, I do. Actually, I do. I um, kind of in a weirdly same, similar vein, I could see your demon being a bear. Because it's cute, but at the same time, it's very fearsome. Uh, Fishing, yes. Hibernating, definitely. Yeah, but how am I going to get a bear on my boat? Well, it doesn't have to be like a huge grizzly. It's a reasonable sized bear. So it's a mini, like a mini brown bear. Yeah, or a black bear. Okay. So for myself, of course, what I go to immediately is what my Patronus is, which is a cat. I'm obsessed with cats. If you guys know me, IRL. You know that I live for cats. I love cats so, so, so much. But taking cats out of the equation. Okay. I, I, I'm i surprised because I absolutely think that your, your d- demon is a cat. Yeah. I mean, like, I think so, too. I think it's like sort of a, like a mangy, like a bobcat or a lynx or something that lives in the forest and isn't like a super glamorous looking animal. <laughs> <laughs> But I was going to suggest the my tattoo. Oh, a mouse king. Yes. I should post a picture of this on our Instagram so people can see what we're talking about. Oh, yeah. I know it's on your personal Instagram, but we'll post it on to the Genre Junkies Instagram account as well. My, my very majestic, beautiful, fantastical beast, my mouse king, on my arm, which I have as a tattoo, could be a potential demon for me as well. 
So it's almost impossible to not talk about this beautiful, wonderful series and not address the controversy therein. So I would like to talk about it a little bit. We're not going to get like crazy, crazy deep into it, but I'm concerned that maybe some people haven't read these books because they're afraid. And I don't want people to be afraid. If I can be honest, I did not know that there was a huge controversy about the series. If I think about it, I'm not really surprised. But as someone who was raised Catholic, Christian himself, I can see where there may be some controversy. But reading it, I don't really understand it because it doesn't really it doesn't really attack any Christian values. Well, attack is always an interpretation, I think, because if you perceive something as an attack, then it will be an attack. If you perceive something as a story, a bit of creativity, an idea, a thought, uh, you know, just a, a story, I can't think of another word for it, then you don't need to necessarily be offended by it. I certainly don't agree with every person I ever reads opinions on things, and that's fine. That's fine. You don't, you know, Philip Pullman's not trying to start a religion here or trying to get people to abandon their current religion. But the series, and this book included, is a criticism, a skepticism of organized religion, uh, specifically Christian dogma. And more specifically, I suppose, really Catholicism. Yes, the Catholic Church. Now, in this series, the church is set in Geneva. There's differences. It's a, it's a parallel, but it's different. It's basically as if the church, the Catholic Church, essentially, controlled all of the Western world. That's right. Yes. So, I mean, because we don't know exactly what's going on in every other country in this world, but it's very largely accepted that Western civilization is controlled by these folks. The church is the government. Right. And there's people who don't want it that way. And there's people who think it shouldn't be that way. And there's people that think it damn sure should be that way. So, I mean, basically, I mean, like a lot of book people, Scott and I am speaking for both of us and Stitches. We don't believe in banning books. I mean, we don't believe in censoring what you read or any sort of thing you consume, really, but especially books. And it just breaks my heart that people don't trust each other as readers to just enjoy a story as a story. If that's all it means to you, you don't have to take it personally. Would you agree? I wholeheartedly agree. Is this book banned a lot? I believe it is well, banned. Well, the series anyway. Quite some. More so than I know a lot of like schools banning it, which I think is a thing. It's like people encourage other people to not read this book, to not see the movie when it came out, to not support it. There was lots of protests and stuff. I think you don't remember, but when we went and saw this movie, there were people protesting it. I don't remember that. That, that makes me very sad. It makes me sad too. And Philip Pullman kind of jokes about this off and on in interviews because he says like he feels like he actually kind of scraped under the radar and Harry Potter kind of got more of the backlash. But anyway, it's it's just some ideas. It's just this person's opinion. Please let your faith be your faith and just enjoy this book series and get out of it what you can. Don't be scared. Dive in. It really is a beautiful story. It's beautifully written. And it's just, it has, a, it has so much heart. Oh my God, so much heart. In reference to especially La Belle Sauvage, this trilogy, this new trilogy, 
part of really this expanding universe of historic materials, I found this wonderful quote from Philip Pullman, kind of addressing this series, um, part of the bigger His Dark Materials universe, but especially this first book in the, which I'm assuming is the La Belle Sauvage trilogy. It's actually the Book of Dust trilogy. Oh, really? This okay. This book was called La Belle Sauvage. The trilogy is The Book of Dust. Perfect. Thank you for the clarification. He says, Perhaps the oldest philosophical question of all, are we matter? Or are we spirit and matter? What is consciousness if there is no spirit? Questions like that are of a perennial fascination, and they haven't been solved yet, thank goodness. So really, this trilogy is about consciousness. And in a lot of ways, I think people will think about, I know I did, artificial technology, AIs. You know, what makes a human a human? What makes a person a person? And yeah, that question can be very much interpreted scientifically, or it can be interpreted spiritually. And these books are about that question. And it never shoves anything down your throat and, and answers the question for you completely, even no, of course at the not. end of the trilogy. Yeah, no, of course not. I mean... Philip Pullman, I think, has a lot of respect for his readers, and he wants you to draw your own conclusions and have your own honest-to-goodness thoughts. Come on, people, you can think for yourselves. Well, anyway, I'd like to talk a bit about La Belle Sauvage specifically. Please, hit so, us. What, what was your experience with the book? Oh, my experience with the book. Um, I wanted it to be something I was obsessed with, but in all honesty, it was a page turner for me. I loved it. I loved being back in this place. And I couldn't wait to hear where we were going. And I think the book definitely picked up steam as it was rolling along. Page turner. Super page turner for me. Okay. Um. Well, my experience might be a little colored by the fact that I was forced to read this on my phone. Ah, he lost uh, his Kindle. Yeah. We didn't have this in hard copy. It went missing for a while in the confusion of packing and unpacking while we were evacuated. But uh, it, it came home. So La Belle Sauvage was a genuinely good read. Uh, bordering on page turner in a lot of parts, but I'd have to rate it as a good read. I love Pullman's world building and the characters were interesting, but there are parts that did drag, particularly in the first half, but I really did enjoy it as a whole. I can see what you mean about the dragging, but I was so compelled to keep going that it pushed it into page turner territory for me. But there was a little bit of, even though this world has been built, there is world building in this book. There's quite a lot of world building. It's one of the reasons why I think... It's hard for me to separate what I do know from the world mm -hmm. and just forget all of that and treat the book as its own. But I think it does a pretty good job of explaining the important parts of Pullman's world. I totally agree. I totally agree because some people might be coming to this as the first um, of his book they've read, like we talked about. So I'd love to address our characters a little bit. Uh, let's start with Malcolm. Malcolm. So one of the best parts about Pullman's books is when you're ever, whenever you're talking about a character, you're really talking about two. Yes. So, so in this case, you're talking about Malcolm and his demon, Asta. So demons are always in a binary fashion, the opposite gender of 
the human character. Yes, of your assigned biological gender. Right. So, like, if you're assigned male at birth, your demon will represent as female. That's right. Malcolm and Asta are incredibly inquisitive, but they weren't—they were born on the wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> well, I, I don't like that. That sounds mean, but I get where you're going with it. So he's the son of an innkeeper and his wife. They have a lovely inn, a beautiful inn, and they're. Probably the best innkeepers ever. Yeah, I mean, they're always hopping. I mean, there's either people staying or there's people frequenting the pub. So, I mean, they're always busy because Malcolm works the inn as well. That's right. And he's very good. He's very friendly and they like him. The thing is, is that he's so precocious and he's so curious and inquisitive, but he doesn't come from money. He doesn't come from status. So the idea of actually going to college is just not something that is ever something that could ever cross his mind. It's not something that's available to him. He'll probably end up running the inn. Now, the inn, like I mentioned, is uh, situated near Oxford. So he gets a lot of these uh, scholarly types coming through, which helps feed his inquisitiveness. But really, what's keen about Malcolm is that he is an observer. He really is. He's a born spy. Nothing gets past him. And he kind of blends in to his surroundings. And he's very good at adapting. He's a well-read young man. He loves books. Um, He's about 11. I believe he's 11. He's 11, yes. So he's kind of at that tween age of still some innocence, but he's becoming more worldly. And Asta is just a delight. Asta is very wise, I would say. She's always thinking ahead. She's always thinking of, oh, but we need to be careful and we should watch out because if this, then that, which I thought was really sweet. They complement each other perfectly. But she also has the same observant traits that he does. Yes. In fact, in many ways, more so. More than any of the other demons in this book particularly, She's used as a lookout, as a spy, a lot. Yes, definitely. Uh, Like I said, she's kind of always ahead. She's thinking ahead, so she's looking ahead. She's observing and figuring things out with him. So since he's young, as I mentioned before, um, Asta can still shapeshift and take on different things. Like, you know, she can be a moth one moment, or she could be a barracuda the next. Without giving too much away, there's another character that kind of becomes... Uh, Malcolm's companion, and her name is Alice. She's another girl. She's a little bit older, though. She's 16. And her demon is named Ben, which for some reason I just find absolutely hilarious. It's just so basic and simple. Yes. When you have demons named Pantalaemon. Yes. And and Asta. And and hers is just Ben. Yeah, just Ben. Hi, I'm Ben. And he's, um, he's still flexing. He's still changing with her as well. She works the inn. And they kind of fall into this adventure together. She is kind of a delightful character to read because she's very acerbic. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great word. She's very sarcastic. She's she's, guarded. It's so funny. There's a part in the book when when he uses a fake name for her. And he uses the name Sandra. And she says, Can't, couldn't you think of anything better? And I'm laughing in my head yeah. because really? Sandra's the perfect name for her. <laughs> I wonder why you would think that. Yes, I was like, you should be delighted to be Sandra, you ungrateful bee. I'm kidding. 
Um, but I, I loved her and Ben's relationship. Ben doesn't talk a whole lot. He talks a lot to her privately, which I'm sure is very telling about her character. Well, I noticed in this book particularly, you don't talk to a lot of the other demons, any anyone's other demons. Not really. You don't. Um, there's, okay, I will say this, Scott and I actually, we try not to talk about these books, but we had briefly touched on this. Malcolm's mother, she's, um, she's very practical. She helps run the inn. She actually does all the cooking with some assistance from these kids, but she's a busy, busy lady. And her demon is a badger. And he's <laughs> so like, perfect. He's like this grumpy old salt that like sits in the damn corner and like he has like one line in the whole book and then he just goes back to his place. Oh my god, I died. I thought he was so hilarious. A hidden gem, if you will. Hey, one other character worth mentioning is Malcolm's mentor of sorts, Dr. Hannah Ralph. Hannah is actually my favorite character in the book. She was awesome. She was totally awesome. Uh, so she is a scholar at Oxford, I believe. Yeah, she must be, because that's the neighboring college. She is kind of studying relevant things to our through storyline. And she believes in Malcolm so thoroughly. It's really beautiful. She is just so enamored with him, and she really believes that he is very smart, very intelligent, very capable, and has a lot of opportunity ahead of him. So she's a beautiful character. We definitely can't uh, indulge in her too much because we don't want to spoil things. <laughs> Another character, characters, if you will, but we'll call them character, that I wanted to mention is the nuns at the convent right next door. I loved the nuns. Oh, my God. They were sweet and funny and sarcastic badasses and some they were, some of them were scary some of them were mean but at the at the end of the day they were all still kind people yeah and i loved that and um they play a pretty big role in the story going forward but i i mean i'm just saying look out for it look out for those nuns you're going to love the nuns trust me so let's talk about writing style a little bit uh, we're a little biased, as we said, because we're huge fans of Philip Pullman, so obviously we like his writing style. Now, for me, it's hard for me to exactly pinpoint his writing style. It's whimsical. It's kind of cheeky and knowing. It makes me feel incredibly emotional. It's beautiful. And it almost reads like a classic you know what I mean? Like, I do. yeah, it almost reads like a classic when he writes. Almost poetic. Yes. I cannot really put into words the the magic this man puts into his books where it makes me feel emotional. I feel so invested. And he'll have these things, these turn of phrase or these sentences that just make me like <laughs> like get all like, you know, I just want to cry. He's one of the few authors who not only makes you feel like you really they are there in their world. Yes. But at the same time makes you wish that you could go back anytime you're not reading it. It just he just makes you wish that you were there. It's like he has this tether on my heart and just the words he says just tugs at it, just pulls at my heart at my cold black sparkly heart. But if I can say I think that the way that he writes and the way that he constructs his stories and his descriptions saves him in some ways, go particularly on. in this book. Yes, please go on. 
a large portion of this book is set up to world building and character building, possibly to its detriment. And if it wasn't for his brilliant writing style, which there are very few authors that truly has his gift in that, this book would have suffered a lot more with how much was spent on world and character building. I can see what you mean. Um, he's he's a very unique writer in that way. I think that that is why he's so popular. All these things we're talking about. He has these brilliant concepts. He has a way of talking about these big, heavy concepts. But he makes them feel like, ah, it's okay. You don't have to be scared. It's just ideas. Reading his prose feels like drinking a glass of cool water. For me, it's like a little warm, friendly cup of tea. It's very like homecoming feeling to be back in his words. <laughs> Sounds so dramatic, but he has this effect on me, man. I really can't think of an author who writes exactly like him. In a weird way, it reminds me of when I was a young teen and the first time I read Tolkien, the first time I read the Lord of the Rings books. I mean, he is British and there's kind of that ho-hum British humility about his writing. Is that a thing? I think it's a thing. It is, yes. Yeah, so it kind of, it's evocative of that to me. And other classics, that's why I thought, you know, classic. Well, it's very easy, particularly in fantasy, to become very grandiose and very self-important in your writing. And he never he never gets to that point. That's the, like I said, like the cheekiness, the like knowingness of his writing. The Eric Idols, the Neil Gaimans, the Douglas Adams, they don't take themselves so seriously. Right. They might be talking about big, serious things. There's a sense of playfulness and joy, even yes! in serious moments. And I love that because as the Joker puts it, why so serious? And that is how I try to live my life. So in sort of an appeal sense. So I'd like to start with this if I could. Oh, please, please, my, my beloved co-host, hit it. I think that this does have general appeal. It's a great story, even if you haven't read the His Dark Materials series. I think you could even read this before you read The Golden Compass if you haven't read it yet. There's some very deep fantasy, and some of that isn't explained in as much detail as in the original books, particularly the idea of demons is not quite as built upon. But I think that you really can read this book, even if you haven't read the series. Since I think the series definitely fits into wide appeal, I will put this into general. I guess I'm going to push it a step further. And I, I think this has mass appeal because... Wow, mass appeal. Yes, I do. Because the his other books that... Well, he's written other books, but his Dark Materials is what I'm referencing, had mass appeal. It won a ton of awards. It's... One of those weird things where he never said if it's a young adult book or an adult book, the main characters in his books are children. But I mean, if you love reading, you love reading. And I don't think the age of your lead characters has anything to do with it. And a lot of people the world over has gotten so much joy and thought-provoking conversation and love from his stories that I think there is mass appeal there. Of course, some people are, are going to be scared of these books, and I wish they wouldn't be, but I think it is mass appeal. But do you think that the appeal of La Belle Sauvage is as wide as The Golden Compass? 
because I'm not sure that it is. I'm still not quite sure if you could read this book without any knowledge of the other books. I'm like 98% sure you could. Like 98% sure. Again, okay. it's hard because we have read the other books, so I can't like completely say, but I think you could. And and I think you could enjoy this, as we talked about, as a standalone book. I really do think that the plot and the characters stand up on their own. I agree. Yeah. But this book does go into pr- some pretty deep fantasy at points that I think will scare some people away on the wide end. Well, if you want to hear us talk a little bit more about this, I think we're going to explore it in the uh, spoiler section, which is coming up. Yeah, I think that's coming up next. So let's all take a quick break and come on back for spoilers. Enjoying the show? Please like and subscribe on iTunes. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at genrejunkies. And don't forget to visit the website, genrejunkies.com. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the spoiler section. Please have a seat right here in the front row. We're going to dive right into it. The big spoiler of this book for me is thematic. And that is the concept, which is so hard not to talk about until this point, of free speech. Free speech is huge in this book to me. This was a huge takeaway. And in so many countries, like sometimes even our own, it is hard to have freedom of speech without pissing people off. Specifically, the little St. Alexander group. That was a very well-addressed concept of free speech. The idea that you can militarize children to snitch on the adults and keep them in line. I mean, at one point, the children basically take over the school. Because they know they have the power over the adults. I mean, children, I love children, and children are very honest, but at the same time, they're still getting into that age, especially where Malcolm is, where there's a little bit of uh, corruption going on. They'll take advantage of every out they can get. Right. So this idea that, oh, you get to wear this special little badge and parade around the school and rat out people who say things even vaguely against the church, is frightening. It really is. And they, they, they keep the teachers apologizing in front of the... They humiliate them. They absolutely humiliate them by, like, if you're lucky enough to keep your job, you have to, like, basically throw yourself at the mercy of the children and appease them. That's crazy. Because if not, they'll basically report them as a communist. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it's witch hunts, it's McCarthyism, it's... McCarthyism, that's exactly what it is, you're right, thank you. Yes, it's all that stuff that is so scary uh, when we start policing each other as a society, and that's one of the reasons why myself, and I'm sure, like I said, a lot of other readers, don't like banning things. We don't like labeling things as like, oh, this is bad, or whatever, it's like... It's a thought. It's freedom of speech. It's art. It's expression. That's right. You you can't tell someone you can't think about this or you can't discuss this or you can't explore this. Yes. Um, and you can kind of tell all of the like good guy characters in the book, including from the first series, Lord Asriel, anybody in Dr. Hannah Ralph, any of the adults who say like, ew, I don't like this at all. 
this sucks. Even um, his parents, Malcolm's parents, who don't seem particularly political or religious, are kind of like, huh. I mean, it's like, it smacks of bad news. And I loved that theme in this book. Loved that he addressed it. And he used kids. And he used Malcolm to be kind of this like, huh, I feel kind of weird. I mean... Yeah, I guess it's good. I want to do the righteous thing, but is this good? I don't I don't think this is good. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He's not a joiner. It's very easy to look at this and say, well, this is the effects that the church has on people. But even people within the church have second thoughts about what's going on. The nuns, for example. You know, those badass nuns that I love, man. They're, they're really not comfortable with these organizations that the church has created to police no. the state. Yes, exactly. And speaking of my nuns, who I love so much, how wonderful was it when those evil church child nappers showed up to snatch Lyra and what's her name? Sister Lead Nun? Mother Superior, whatever she is. Sorry, I forget her name. I loved her, though. Like I said, all the nuns are kind of like one nun to me. Um, She was like, you will not. This is a place of sanctuary. This is a place of holiness. And she throws their warrant in the fire. And she's like, I don't know who the F you are. Ah, go, girl. It was brilliant. I mean, she's standing up to her own church in a way. Yes. And she probably will be punished for it. She they're they're strong women and they believe in their holy duty. Yes, and I liked that because kind of like we talked about like I mean, I I don't I don't have any vendetta personally against organized religion. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what religion everybody should be. <laughs> and I liked that these people were someone of their faith. But they weren't expecting to behave like the bad people of faith do. Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. So how crazy is the villain in this book? The villain is incredibly frightening, especially when he's beating his own demon. Holy shit. That was completely unexpected. This is Gerard Bonneville, as a reminder. He's the bad guy that's kind of after Lyra uh he's well first of all he's some sort of a rapist dude he's been in prison for a sexual assault at least one he is an experimental theologian he should be a well-regarded man of science and he was but he lost all credibility because he's damn creep because he was accused of molesting a child was it a child it was a child oh god even even worse If that can be said, even worse. But anyway, so then he wants to kidnap Lyra as what we can kind of surmise is some sort of revenge against her mother, Mrs. Coulter. Who testified against him in in court. Right, and she's a fascinating character in her own right. We could have a whole podcast about her. But um, he is like sociopathic, right? Like he presents himself as very charming, very charismatic, but at the same time, people stay away from him because of his demon being so opposite what they see. It's like they intuitively know this is a bad dude. Because his demon is an incredibly angry, horrifying, evil hyena. Who is missing a leg. Now we know she probably chewed off her own damn leg because they are so at war with themselves. She is not well. Well, no, her leg was taken off by another character in the book. 
this is a spoiler section. You can just say it. Did he take her leg? No, the... I, I can't remember. Oh my god, no, you're right. Somebody did take her. I can't her, remember like, which character it was. But I mean, he beats the the bejesus out of her. It's amazing she has any legs. It is unheard of for a sound-minded person to hit or abuse their demon because that is you. That is yourself. And it hurts you when when your demon is hurt. Yes. So you're hurting yourself. You're punishing yourself on the most <laughs> deeply spiritual, emotional level you can have. And that is really disturbing. He, he he clearly lost his mind. Yes, but he's still conniving. He's still clever. He can still move within society. He's a he's a pariah. He's awful. Ugh. Don't like him. He kind of becomes a ghost, a specter, uh um a demon. I don't know what he becomes, and I kind of like that when the flood comes, everything is kind of turned topsy-turvy. That's my favorite part of the book, is suddenly things are not as they were. They meet these magical creatures, and like his character, um, uh, Gerard's character, becomes, yeah, something other-ish, or he can kind of move throughout worlds a little bit more i liked that a shadow yeah i i liked that i didn't know exactly what was happening in our world because it's the same way malcolm and alice are experiencing it they don't really understand what is going on around them except for it's like this sort of thinning of the veil this like almost biblical flood where all these worlds are kind of overlapping with each other a little bit well, and La Belle Sauvage has a lot more, plays a lot more with the idea of fey and spiritual creatures yes. than any of the other books do. Yes, and I loved it. I loved it. I mean, we do have these sort of magical, wonderful creatures throughout the entire series, but I was so here for the fantasy creatures that um, the the giant he was fantastic. The gatekeeper. Yes, and then the weird fairy breastfeeding lady. I loved that scene. That was amazing. That was that was completely unexpected. Yes, and then the island where they couldn't be seen by the denizens there because people go there to forget. What a wonderful concept when you think about it. It's through the fog of memory. It's almost like limbo. Right, and you can see on the other side of the fog, if you're at the right vantage point, the ugly, disgusting things is brilliant. It's just like, it leaves me almost speechless. There's another character we really didn't discuss, and that's La Belle Sauvage itself. The boat, his beloved canoe. I loved that boat, and I Oh my I god, admit, I, I bet you did. Oh, I bet I you cried. did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scott has a boat. He's co-owner of a boat. Of the first of, I'm sure, many boats Scott will own throughout his life. But your boat is very important to you. And Malcolm has this beautiful pride in his boat. And he already loved it when it was ratty. And then the Egyptians make it fancy and cool. And And it's magical. It's almost like it's another demon of his. It is a part of his soul. And having it sink at the end really is a part of him being destroyed. Absolutely. I kind of almost want to jump right to that. What did you think of the ending? I wasn't bothered by the ending at first. I actually liked the ending. Yeah. 
But as I learned that the second book in this series isn't going to involve any of these characters, right? I became disappointed with the ending. As the beginning of right. a trilogy, the ending would be perfectly sufficient. It would be great. It, it leads into a little bit of the next book. It leaves questions open. Right. But not knowing if they'll ever return to Malcolm... I'm actually very disappointed. There really wasn't enough closure. So the book ends, Alice and Malcolm get baby Lyra and little Pantalaemon, love that name, her demon, to her father, Lord Asriel. And we know, and he gets them sanctuary at Jordan College. And we know that Lyra will grow up uh, in a collegiate setting as thinking that Lord Asriel is her uncle. And we, we know where Lyra goes from that. But the next book in this trilogy is going to be Lyra as an undergraduate student. So after the events of the His Dark Materials trilogy. So after, after Subtle Spyglass or uh, <laughs> after Amber Spyglass. That was wonderful. You totally meshed the subtle knife and the Amber Spyglass. That was cute. Uh, anyway, I want to have faith in Philip Pullman that he will give us resolution on Malcolm. But I'm still right now okay with the ending. Um, I finished it earlier than you did, so I think I had a little more time to sit with the ending. I want to say that he will give us completion. I mean, the thing is, is that really, as far as we know, this is the end of Malcolm and Lyra's relationship because Malcolm and Alice are not in uh, his dark materials. They had this duty, this beautiful journey, this purpose to deliver her. And then I guess they go home. There's starting to be feelings between the two of them. So maybe they're going to end up running the inn together. I don't know. Uh, maybe uh, that's kind of what I'd like to think happens to them. Maybe. I don't know. It's hard to say. I, I want us to have closure on these two characters because I grew so attached to them. But in a way, it's kind of poetically beautiful that this is just their little journey, their little slice of this pie. I still would have liked to have found out, did the inn survive? Did his parents survive? The trout? Oh, hell yes, the trout survived. You can't beat the trout. Did the two of them still continue to be friends? Did they eventually become more when he wasn't 11 years old? <laughs> well, I mean, they're both kids, 11 and 16, which is an age difference, but uh, they've been through quite a lot, so it's it's kind of hard to compare it to. And it, it is to... a little bit of a different time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean it is different time, different world. current times, but yeah. it's, it's as if things froze a hundred years ago. Right. They've, they've been on a journey that few will ever experience together, and that's going to bring two people together. I'd like to think that Alice's demons settles on a greyhound. That seemed apt for her. It seemed appropriate. I wonder what Asta will settle on. An owl, I think. I think something of flight like that. Because... Uh, How many times he said, be an owl? It's like, that could be its own drinking game. Well, yeah, she was an owl for a lot of the book. Anytime they were they were spying around, she was an owl so she could see in the dark. I thought it was kind of cool, too, how we got a glimpse into little infant Lyra's personality. I mean, her and Pantalaemon are way more developed than most infants are. And she has this magnetism, this charisma about her, which is important because she's a 
person of prophecy. And you kind of got to see that, yeah, it was always that way. She's Pe- always been special. She's always been friendly. She's and- always been drawing people into her to follow her. So I am excited that this next book in the Dust trilogy will focus on Lyra as a young adult because where is she going? She has ambitions. She has a purpose. How will it be fulfilled? I'm highly anticipating this book. It's probably going to be about a year till it comes out. In the He the, said he was hoping to have it come out a year after this one. And nothing's been said about the third one, which is fine. We don't need to future trip. And I do want to live in the moment with this wonderful book. But of course, I just like, I want to get my hot little hands on a copy of the next one. Well, I'm really excited to read through the original trilogy again. You think you're going to reread it now? I'm I'm going to try, yeah. It's so good. It's so, so, so good. You guys, I hope we've shed a little light on this beautiful fantasy fiction book and this series. It really is kind of a love letter to this whole series without getting super, super into it because you could probably have like a year-long podcast just dissecting this world in this book series. But we're not going to do that. We're going to move on. All right. I want to hear your score. How many broken down canoes (laughs) out of 10 would you give this book? Well, I'm a sucker for Philip Pullman and his Dark Material series is very near and dear to my heart. La Belle Sauvage was worth the 17 year wait and made me desperately want to reread the original trilogy. The first half does a lot of world building, which while excellently written should have either gone further to make it a truly standalone book or pulled back and trusted the fans to fill in the blanks. I didn't love the conclusion, especially after I learned that the next book in the series takes place 20 years later. That said, the main plot is beautifully realized fantasy with strong characters, sharp writing and exciting plot. So I'm giving it a three and a half out of five broken down boats. <laughs> but I can't recommend this book enough, even if you are not already familiar with Pullman's work. Well, see, I had originally said out of 10, and then you just changed it to out of five. Well, seven out of 10. Seven out of 10 broken down books. <laughs> but canoes. B- b- canoes. I know. It's it's a broken lot. Broken down canoes. Yeah. No, you got it. You got there eventually. So here's the thing. I think I enjoyed the ending more than you did. I have a hard time, as I said earlier, putting into words how much his books mean to me. And this one, I'm sure, will eventually be up there with his dark materials for me. Uh, I loved it. It was a little bit clunky at the beginning as we're kind of building, but I was so excited with where we were going. It really didn't deter me. I'm going to give this nine broken down little canoes out of ten. All right. Yes. And I agree. I cannot recommend this book enough. And if you're already here through the spoilers, I hope you feel the same way. Now, without further ado, I think it's time to turn in for the night and uh, curl up with a good book. What do you say? I agree. All right, everybody. Please keep reading past your bedtimes.
Nailed it. Nailed it.